Well, hey there, you beautiful freaks. What's going on this morning? I hope you're all having a great Friday or whatever day it is that you're listening to this podcast. It's your boy Marty Ben here to introduce this week's episode. Had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Jeremy Rubin, a Bitcoin core contributor who's been doing a massive amount of work uh, in the Bitcoin uh, space uh, for quite a while now. Uh, most recently, if you freaks have been paying attention, specifically in the last couple days, uh, you'll notice that he officially got a BIP number for uh, his op check template verify uh, BIP, uh, BIP number 119. Uh, when we recorded this last week, uh, the number had not been assigned yet. So uh, when we're referring to uh, op CTV, uh, this, this BIP wasn't created yet. So we talked a lot about BIP 119, which is out there now. We, uh, we talk about uh, Jeremy's p- past contributions to, to the Bitcoin core repository he's uh he's a gentleman who who likes to jump around from different um different uh areas of the code base and he's not focused on one area whether it be the wallet gui or uh p2p network or something like that he likes to jump around and uh to me that's very fascinating somebody who is multifaceted and able to contribute to bitcoin in many ways so we talked about again bit 119 which just got assigned its number yesterday i believe uh we talked about uh how swap pow swap the uh, on-chain hash rate derivatives um and we talked about dev incentives and funding devs and a bunch of other stuff i think you guys are really going to enjoy this i uh very very happy that i was able to get jeremy in the studio and have a conversation with him about all this stuff uh you're going to learn a lot about bit 119 which is hot in the news today so very timely episode this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. All right, freaks. I hope you saw the new logo. We collabed with the Cash App design team uh, uh, to to re- revamp the brand a little bit. We're going to do that every six months. Uh, they they were really cool, uh, helping us and uh, giving us some resources to uh, be creative. We like creativity here at Tales from the Crypt. And as you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money. It's the simplest way to stack sats, and now it's the simplest way to grow your money. Introducing Cash App Investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stock, Cash App's going to let you... Oh, did I say stock? I meant to say stonk. I'm sorry. Cash App's going to let you instantly invest as little or as much as you want into any stonk that you want. If you've got a favorite stonk out there and it's just a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1, right? You can stack slivers of stonks. Slivers of shares, slivers of stonks, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy, all right? And because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods, all right? You're going to be able to do that right away. You can start investing today. Broker services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. And always remember, you don't have to stack stonks if you don't want to. It's just an option. It's there. Stacking sats is still there too as well. Uh, and it's still very easy. And I bet they're going to make it even easier going forward. As always, when you sign up and use the code STACKINGSATS, that's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S, you're going to get $10, and Cash App is going to send $10 to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. So download the Cash App from the App Store or the Google Play Store today. Enjoy this episode with Jeremy Rubin. A lot of good things happening in Bitcoin right now, uh, and Jeremy is, uh, is one of the good things happening, his uh, op check template verify. Enjoy it, freaks. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt here. Third interview of the week. It's been a big week for us. Uh, Very excited for this one. Um, Been very excited for all my interviews this week, but especially 
excited for this one because this is a man uh, who's been contributing to the Bitcoin core for quite a while now, and I've been watching from afar on Twitter. Uh, I've written about uh, a lot of the stuff that he's been working on in the bent. Uh, we've talked about some of it here on the podcast as well. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Jeremy Rubin. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really glad to be here. Thanks for coming, man. Um, again, like I said, I've been watching from afar for for years now, feels like on Twitter. Uh, I feel like I remember the early days of the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, and you helped start that. So I guess let's start there. Like, how did you get into Bitcoin? You've been uh, contributing for quite a while now. Uh, yeah, I first heard about Bitcoin back in 2011. I was uh, doing an internship while I was in high school and doing what interns sometimes do, which is read Hacker News. I heard about Bitcoin and, you know, I was like, oh, that's neat. And then I uh, didn't pay too much attention until I got back to school, you know, the next fall. And people were kind of using Bitcoin to buy stuff online. And I was like, oh, that's actually cool. People kind of use this stuff, mined a little bit on my laptop and then like shut it off because it was running too hot. And then ignored it until after my freshman year of college, I kind of picked up again, 2013, started looking at stuff and going, this is actually cool. Yeah, I imagine MIT was a very interesting place to be at when, uh, when people were discovering Bitcoin. It had to be a cool scene. Yes and no. Uh, so I got pretty into it. I was pretty excited. I had a few friends who also thought it was kind of cool. But at the institution level, there really wasn't that excitement. And across campus, a lot of people just kind of ignored it. And so I actually started a project to give all MIT undergrads $100 of Bitcoin. I remember um, this. And so, uh, you know, with, it wasn't my Bitcoin. It was, you know, with the help of sponsors and stuff. Uh, so we did that. And then things got like a little bit more exciting. And then that's where the DCI came in as we were saying, okay, we've got all these people who are excited and fired up, but then there's no classes and there's no research lab. So the DCI kind of served to be a common focal point for the community to go and, you know, do Bitcoin research. Yeah. And, uh, I forget, I forget, thank God you mentioned the airdrop. I forgot about that a little bit. Um, what, uh, what do we learn from that airdrop? How did the students end up using that? Um, so there's a few papers that you can go check out from, uh, Christian Catalini. He's one of the professors who we, uh, roped in to help us understand what happened. We did like a full fledged, uh, you know, IRB approved study of what went on. Uh, some of the results that we were able to show were kind of about how much people care about privacy. And, you know, not that much, but also uh, we were able to show effects around like early adopters and systems that uh, sort of uh, delay early adopters from getting access. Uh, those early adopters who get delayed just never want to adopt that, you know, sort of like hipsters. If they only want to get in before it's cool, once it's cool, they're not going to get in. Yeah. Even if it's a good thing that they otherwise would have been interested in. Yeah. No, that's the... Uh... The funny thing about Bitcoin, everybody's like, it's too late, it's too late, it's too late. Are we too late? Uh, well, depends on what that means. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, if you're expecting a 1,000x return on you know, Bitcoin at this point, I'm not a you know, financial forecaster, but that seems like a little bit aggressive. Uh, I think if you're expecting Bitcoin to do something useful for you, it's better than ever. You know, it's more usable, more liquidity on exchanges, things like that, more reliable. So I think that Bitcoin is maturing and growing into itself. Um, so it's not too late to become a Bitcoin user, but maybe it's too late to become a Bitcoin billionaire or something like that. Yes, I, I, very happy to say that because uh, it, it does seem like everything is is getting more efficient, more robust. If you don't pay attention to the price, it's something I try not to do. And 
on this podcast and the newsletter I write, just focus on the stuff that's being built. And it seems like, um, there's some incredible stuff being built right now. I saw Peter will, uh, put something on the mailing list today about like an updated, uh, BIP after all the reviews for BIP taproot and all that. Yeah. So there's been a lot of progress on various BIPs going on. Um, and, uh, at a certain point when you feel like a BIP is kind of mature enough and it's got enough general acknowledgement, you apply for a number so that the BIP is kind of like, okay, here's like a reference that this is actually, you know, assigned, but then that doesn't mean anything about, you know, if people have actually reviewed it, it's just kind of a signifier that like, Hey, people are actually legitimately thinking about adding this to Bitcoin. Like it's kind of your social responsibility now to actually review this. If you're a company relying on Bitcoin, you, at that point you kind of have to look. Um, and that's the, uh, the message Peterson today, or the PR he made today. Uh, well, I can't speak for him with, yeah. with you know, what message he's sending. Um, yeah. uh, when it's still a draft bit, they're still opening for comments. So okay. it's not like you're saying prepare for this. Okay. You're saying like, hey, we really want to get feedback on this because most people have looked at this already. So if you have you know, any qualms or gripes um, or things that you come up and review, they're going to break an application for you. Uh, this is a pretty important time to give that feedback because we're not it's not yet able to activate. We haven't yet merged it into core, but, uh, or other implementations, but that might happen, um, you know, after this period. And people are pretty excited about it. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's another thing you've been working on scaling Bitcoin, um, uh, trying to, uh, organize conferences and meetings for people to come and talk about how we can scale this technology. So how is, uh, go back a little bit to, to your days at MIT, how much has it, like, what was Bitcoin like back then where were the clunkiest parts? Yeah, so the original Scaling Bitcoin conference was uh, September 2015 in Montreal, kind of like at the height of the block size wars or whatever you want to call them. Uh, there was a lot of tension. Um, just getting people into the same room to have a conversation was an achievement in and of itself because that hadn't really happened before. And we waited kind of too late until the point where people were like really upset. Um, so those days were like pretty high pressure. Um, this past year we had scaling Bitcoin, I think the fifth or sixth one in uh, Tel Aviv. And it was a pretty, you know, nice time. Um, there was a lot of really great work presented. There wasn't really this like controversy or pressure because I don't think that people were feeling the, uh, you know, sort of like we have to act sort of thing. It's like, okay, well, what are the things that are in the pipeline that people are coming up with that we're going to be able to bring to the community is like a little bit more of the vibe, I think these days. Yeah, I was having a conversation yesterday. It was like, we almost needed to go through that tumultuous, quote unquote, fork war or whatever, uh, block size war battle, whatever people want to call it, to sort of realize how one consensus is made and, and two, it probably makes sense to go slow, um, in my opinion. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think that there are still sort of like negative consequences that uh, have ramifications today for what the culture looks like that are sort of uh, scars. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear that those scars are, you know, healthy, but it's uh, at least impressive for somebody looking in to see these scars and to see that Bitcoin can survive that sort of intense community drama. Yeah. So what do you, you want to uh, jump into that a little further? What, uh, anything particularly, uh, any particular scars that you think? Uh... Um, so generally, I think that uh, I, I want Bitcoin to be able to support anyone who, who wants to use it and to support a wide and diverse um, sort of set of views and opinions. And I think Bitcoin, for the most part, can support that and can 
work in a framework where people really disagree. Um, it's sort of like the, uh, what's the you know, famous quote that's like, to build a tolerant society, you can't tolerate intolerant people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I forget who says, who says that, but uh, it's sort of a big philosophical debate of if, if you have to to- you know, tolerate intolerant people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people certainly have that debate right now. It, it seems kind of uh, you know, important. People argue about you know, the left versus the right, Donald Trump, whatever. Um, but in, in Bitcoin, the, the parallel would be, uh, do we tolerate people who don't want to get full community consensus? And what does it mean to have full community consensus? Yeah. And that's something that we talk about all the time. There's you know, mailing list posts of how should we know if enough people have agreed? Who can we ignore? If one person says, hey, I want to keep on doing what I'm doing, should the rest of the network grind to a halt for that person? So I think I tweeted recently a good one that sometimes it feels like you have uh, you know, developers, users, miners, and, and Raspberry Pi. the Raspberry Pi Foundation, because it's sort of the straw man that everybody brings up of like, can I run Bitcoin core in sync to the network on a Raspberry Pi? Why is that a straw man? It's sort of a straw man because Raspberry Pi is like get better over time. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of like, what's the minimum hardware cost that you need to run a Bitcoin node? And it sort of, uh, you know, begs the question of like, well, like why is, why is this an important thing? You just kind of arbitrarily pick something. I can pick a laptop from like 10 years ago, uh, which is actually my like personal computer. That's what I use. Uh, and I can say, I want to be able to run Bitcoin core on this. I think that there's some, some value in that. Um, but if somebody shows up with like something even worse than a Raspberry Pi, we don't have a framework for saying like, well, we don't, we don't really care. So one of the things that happened recently is, uh, no one really uses like a 32 bit build of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. We don't know any single person who's like actually using this 32 bit build, but we're spending all this developer effort to maintain 32 bit compatibility and to release these binaries. So we stopped releasing the binaries for 32-bit builds because we figure nobody actually needs or uses them. And we're just waiting to see if somebody shows up saying, wait, where's my updated build? I don't have it. I need it for this thing. And it's like, I kind of personally feel like if you have a 32-bit computer and you're trying to run Bitcoin Core, you probably don't even have enough memory. <laughs> so <laughs> like you, you need a lot of RAM to run like a real node. Saying that, uh, I think what you're limited to like four gigs of memory on a 32-bit computer, saying that you're going to run Bitcoin Core in under four gigs of memory seems like a little bit dicey. Yeah, it seems, uh, well, I'm not a hardware expert, but it sounds like four gigabytes of RAM seems a little low. Yeah, like people's cell phones have more RAM than that. So, I mean, I don't want to exclude somebody if they want to run in that environment. And there's definitely use cases where it's like, oh, well, actually the reason why we need to run in four gigs of RAM is we're launching a satellite and we're using, uh, you know, like tenfold redundant, you know, memory. Okay, you know, you have error correction codes, and we need. Okay, I can understand why you'd want to support that, but still, I think that uh, this 32-bit support type thing, it, it, it's not like that's not the set of people who I think matter too much. Um, but it's not my job to say. It's just like if you do actually care that much, then you can maintain the 32-bit stuff. Like yeah. it's not my job to do it. Yeah, figure it out. And so, yeah, I guess that's an interesting question to ask you since you've been around the, uh, the code base for so long. Like, what do you feel responsible to, to look at or review or comment on? Um, I don't know. I think that the general philosophy of the project is scratch your own itch. So it's like whatever is bothering me. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I've been looking a lot at the mempool. Uh, if you're not familiar, the mempool is the data structure in Bitcoin that stores unconfirmed transactions. 
and it helped miners figure out which transactions are profitable to include in the block. So when you are um, trying to figure out like, okay, which block should I mine? You go and consult the mempool and it tells you things that are generally uh, high fee and then you include them and then you start mining on that block. Um, there are a lot of complexities in the mempool that I personally want to um, kind of fix um, and make it a little bit simpler, a little bit more performant um, and remove some sort of uh, denial of service measures uh, over time if I can like fix some of these algorithmic quirks. And are we segueing into object template verify here? With... Uh, that, that could be a segue. I can talk about you know other modules too. This is just what I've been spending the last like couple weeks on um, in terms of like core module. Okay. But you know there's other things that that are you know fascinating topics too and RPC support mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, general performance uh, validation. All these modules are, are kind of important. I would say the one thing that I don't really look at is like the graphical user interface because I, I, I don't really i don't know it's not <laughs> it's not been something i've ever really used well that's why it's it's crazy that you're working on all these i'm always fascinated when i find uh, the bitcoin developers i've spoken to over the years uh some are very focused on one part of the code base and others like hop around and the ones that hop around which seems to be uh your prerogative or not prerogative your uh modus operandi um it always fascinates me that you can be focused on these different areas and switch mental frameworks to talk about this stuff. Yeah, there's definitely, um, there's some people who you say like, hey, you, what's going on in the mempool? Can you help me solve this problem? And they go, oh, I know nothing about that. And you go, well, I thought you've been looking at this project for so long. How do you, you know, how have you only looked at this part? And it's like, well, you, you know, this is what I'm interested in. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And um so the one thing that I mentioned earlier, op check template verify, uh, formerly known as op secure the bag, um, is an op code that you would uh, like to get added to uh, Bitcoin. And uh, the way it's described is, let me try and do this from memory, a covenant template uh, that does one very specific function, or not one very specific function, has a very specific template um, that executes scripts than Bitcoin transactions in a way um, that is not possible now. Um, so before we get into object template verify, um, specifically, I think we have to go uh, go back a little bit in the history of Bitcoin and talk about uh, the opcodes that existed in the past and why Satoshi decided to uh, moonlight a lot of them, to disable a lot of them. Yeah, so Bitcoin transactions aren't just like 10 standard things that you can do, there's actually an entire programming language inside of uh, every Bitcoin output. Um, and the script that you write determines who can spend the coin. Um, a script is composed of a sequence of operations and they manipulate some pieces of data that you've passed in and determine if uh, the transaction that you're trying to get approved should be approved and is authorized by that script. Uh, there previously were several opcodes that had uh, essentially subtle behavior or bugs. And the combination of subtle behavior or bugs could actually grind the network to a halt and break Bitcoin. Uh, so one of them uh, that was disabled early on was this one called uh, OpVer. Um, people don't talk about this one too much because it's kind of not even desirable to reintroduce. but Opver literally asked inside of a script, what version of a client am I running on? So you could imagine that you write a script that says, uh, if I'm running on version A, then it's Alice's coin. 
And if I'm running on version B, then it's Bob's coin. You know, it's their key and it's their coin. And if you were to write that, and then you were to spend on one side of the network with Alice's and on the other side of the network with Bob's, then those transactions would be incompatible. So one would think that it's valid, the other would think it's invalid because you have this commitment to the version and the client version is not a consensus parameter. And so you'd split the network? You would split the network. Okay. So that one's kind of a no-brainer that like mm -hmm. this is a problem. There are others that are like a little bit more subtle of, of where there lies a problem and there's not really necessarily a known problem. It just seems like maybe there's a bug. And then there are ones that there is a problem that we know about um, like opcat uh, which people actually really want to reintroduce for various reasons or reintroduce something similar. What opcat does is it takes two pieces of data and it uh, joins them together. So you are taking, um, you know, like let's say the piece of data that says ABC, the piece of data that says DEF, and then you add it to get one piece of data that says ABC DEF. The issue with that is that there also happened to be another opcode called opdupe, and that means duplicate. So let's say you had a piece of data ABC, you call opdupe. Now you have a piece of data ABC and another piece of data ABC. So what a crafty programmer could do was call a sequence of opdupe, opcat, opdupe, opcat, opdupe, opcat, and keep on doing that, I think, up to like 200 times in a script. And it turns out, if you start with a single byte and then you double it, you get two bytes. You double that, you get four bytes, eight bytes, 16 bytes, 32 bytes, 64 bytes, 128 bytes, 256. And eventually, this can grow actually to like requiring an unlimited amount, basically, <laughs> of RAM on the computer to, to process this transaction. And that would also like shut down everyone's node if you put a transaction like that on the network. Yeah, that would, uh, it would be a bad uh, denial of service attack. Or, yeah. Uh, that's so it's actually, it's not the worst. I would, in my personal opinion, I would say that a hard fork is like maybe like worse because this is the network shuts down. So it's a liveness issue rather than a consistency issue. Mm. It, you kind of pick which properties you care about more. I think if the network were to just shut down, you could reboot it and then write a new rule. But if the network were to fork and people couldn't agree on which one was the legitimate one, that would be a bit more of a problem. I think I agree with you there. Um, it would be terrible if, uh, if the uptime uh, percentage fell below 99%, but yeah. um, I think that's definitely preferable to uh, a hard fork and, and confusion. That would, that would cause much more confusion. And going back to like opcat, so I have no idea. I'm just like, so being able to add those two things, those two pieces of data, is that something like two people enter in a covenant and one wins? Like, uh, is it? like a contract in which two people put money in and one um, gets all of it. So no, you would, you would actually just have uh, like a output that you create that doesn't even necessarily have any keys attached to it. It just says like, okay, you have to evaluate the script to see if you can spend it. And then you would put that into a block. They would be validating that that block was valid with that output. And then it would like concatenate all this stuff together and make this huge amount of memory and then your node would crash. Okay. Um, so it doesn't, it's not even like a coin that you would be able to spend. Interesting. Interesting. Where, a coin that you'd be able to spend necessarily were, um, you know, uh, were there to be a key there that you could reach. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, again, opcode op scared the shit out of people, at least from what I, uh, what I have observed. Um, they're a bit taboo to, to approach. So when I saw people reacting to op check template verify very positively. I piqued my interest a lot. Why do you think people are interested in a op called CTV now for simplicity? Yeah. 
So OpCTV is a special type of opcode that is called an OpNOP upgrade. So in Bitcoin, there are various uh, operations that don't do anything at all. And there is a paradigm that's been used in the past for uh, check sequence verify or check lock time verify, where what you say is we're a no op, this no operation thing, but now we're going to verify some additional property. But to somebody who doesn't know about this additional check, we, the actual execution of the program looks the same. And this works as a trick because if a transaction is invalid, you can't include it in a block. And so for the most part, old clients will see these blocks that have things that look like they're not checking as much as they are, but the block is still valid, whereas new clients are enforcing some additional rule. Interesting. So part of why check template verify is less scary is because it's using this opnop verify semantics. And so the result is that you can only ever, unless there's like a, a fundamental bug, you can only ever reject transactions that previously you would have accepted. Okay. Uh, so that's why it's a little bit less scary, whereas it's not like you've now created a transaction that will brick the network in some way. Okay. Um, people are excited about it, though, not just because it's like, okay, it's not super dangerous, but people are excited about it because of what's, what, what it lets them do. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about uh, how it's going to allow bigger economic users on the network to be more efficient. Uh, congestion control is something that looks very fascinating to me. Yeah, so... Right now in Bitcoin, if you wanted to, let's say, do payroll for a company with 10,000 employees, uh, what sort of solutions might you look to, uh, which is what exists today? Well, you can make 10,000 transactions. Uh, that's going to cost you quite a lot. Um, and you might get into a weird state where you've paid half your employees and the other half are still waiting for their paycheck. And that's not really quite great. Um, you could do batching which is where you uh, make a single transaction that has all those outputs, but now you have the kind of problem that, well, now everyone gets paid or no one gets paid. And because it's a big batch with 10,000 outputs, it's kind of likely that nobody gets paid unless you're paying a really, really high amount of fee. Um, another thing you could look to was like the Lightning Network, but now we're talking about a paycheck. And so we're talking about money that has been like kind of earned and needs to be remitted to somebody in their complete control. Uh, and in the Lightning Network context, that would impose that it, a company trying to pay through Lightning Network, you have to like have your whole salary collateralized. And so I'm just not sure where that liquidity for that collateral in the Lightning Network would be coming from for things like a paycheck. For things like coffee and, and you know, a bagel, like I can understand how like these back and forths are going to balance out over time. Mm -hmm. And you can top them up every now and again using Loop or something like that. But for something like a paycheck, it, that feels like a little bit different. Um, so this is where Check Template Verify, I think, can, can help. One thing that you can do is you can take a batch payment that has like 10,000 outputs and you can turn it into a tree of transactions. Um, and then anyone can look at the original first transaction of that tree, kind of like the root transaction. And then they can verify that at some point they can pull out a UTXO for themselves. And what that lets you do is that lets you decongest the network. So if there's a lot of transactions in the mempool, and it's high fee, you, all you need to do is a transaction with a single output, and then everybody can check that they actually got paid. And then at some time later, when fees go down, you can actually pull out your money and get paid. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it would just... Um, so let's talk about the tree of transactions it creates. They're yeah. conditional, right? It's like if the fee market is... Is this what the conditions are? If the fee market, the mempool is 
so there's no there's no condition or logic necessarily baked into this tree. Mm-hmm. The idea would be that when you are ready to spend, all these transactions have either like a minimal or zero fee in them. You do child pays for parent, which means that on your spending transaction, you specify enough fee for the entire part of the tree that you're broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And as uh, you know, the tree is structured. That means that if there's n people, it's only log n amount of data. And so logarithms grow very, very slowly. So it's not that much data. You can do out the you know sort of math and numbers, and it's it's not very large. Yeah. And so, how hard uh, would it like? What what are the processes of these big economic players going to be like if up uh, CTV gets implemented and they're able to use it? Like, is they're going to be a GUI? We're going to be like uh, so this, this, and that, or yeah. Uh, Interestingly, kind of a quirk of like how unconfirmed transactions work already, I kind of suspect that a lot of wallets will be able to natively handle OpCTV without any additional work. It'll just be kind of like not a great user experience because uh, it will show like you have all these things that are unconfirmed that you're depending on for this transaction and those unconfirmed things look like they're not having any script in them so they could just be replaced by somebody else. But then if you make a small upgrade to the wallet to say, okay, well, trace through the parents of that unconfirmed transaction, then you'd be able to see, oh, these ones are all OpCTV, 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 which confirms that your payment is going to make its way through. And so this simple covenant, which says like, yes, pay these five people, and then those five people expand to pay another five transactions and five transactions or however many until it gets to your node that will give your wallet the proof. And so they need a small upgrade to make that work and then um, to figure out how to pay fees appropriately. Um, that, that would make it a relatively good experience. Until that happens, what I would expect is that exchanges would take the burden of responsibility for expanding these trees and they would use it as sort of opportunistic scheduling where they would say, we're willing to create all these outputs right now for uh, this fee rate and for a higher fee rate, we'll defer creating them, but less overall fee. So we'll give you this big transaction that is paying, let's, let's say like $100 in creating all of our, out, all of our 100 outputs, a dollar per output, or we'll give you $5 to create one output. And if you're a miner and you're trying to fit in a lot of transactions, the $5 for one output, it might be more appealing unless you run out of things that are you know, competitive. And then uh, for the ones that are further down in the tree, because you're willing to now wait for these ones a little bit more, maybe you're only going to offer like 10 cents per output. And so your total spend in that case, 10 cents per output for 100 outputs uh, would be $10 plus $5, $15, rather than spending $100 up front. Those aren't exact numbers for what it would be, but there is some evidence that suggests it's about savings like that. That's pretty massive. Um if that's what it comes out to be. And so focusing on these congestion uh, control stuff, so, so do, would the workers within this covenant like sort of say, hey, I'm willing to wait longer or they have access right away, but they can't move the coins? Uh, yeah, so every user could know that they have these coins and if they're willing to pay a high enough fee, they could, okay. they could pull their money out. Okay, that's what it is. You pay. You, okay, so child pays for parent. Yeah. And then you can get it out faster. All right. Yeah. So, so fundamentally, no, what OpsyTV is saying okay. is you're fixing all the details of the transaction On the um, so that you know that the outputs that you wanted will get created. Okay. Um, and that's the only way that that coin can get spent is to create the outputs that you said that you wanted to create. 
So it's kind of like if you imagine that you had a pre-signed transaction that you said, okay, I'm going to sign some transaction for my wallet, but I'm not going to broadcast it yet. And well, you can, you can always double spend that, right? Yeah. But if you imagine that you had a way to say, but now I can't double spend it because I deleted that key, CTV is equivalent to that, but you don't need a proof that you deleted that key because you can never prove that you deleted something. Yeah. No, incredible. I uh, thank you for coming and explaining this to me. I have a much better understanding. Now. Oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, that's not all that happens with CTV. I think it's something that it, this is sort of like the base case that kind of like explains the intuition, but you can kind of put this inside of other protocols as well. And then you get benefits there as well, like lightning and you know, payment pool type things, um, various other smart contracts. You can make wallet vaults. And it just sort of opens the door, but this is like the sort of uh, base case to understand before the other stuff. Yeah, let's jump into the wallet vaults. That's something you, you're saying the chain code guys are excited about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I won't you know speak for them, but I was yeah. hanging out in their office this week, um, and they were saying, why are you talking about all this batching stuff and congestion control? We think vaults are cool. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, I think they're cool too. That's why I've been working on them, but I thought this is like the kind of prime use case, but maybe I'll talk more about vaults now. Um, and so fundamentally a vault is like, uh, I, I like the idea because it kind of respects the, one of these phrases of Bitcoin, which is be your own bank, which I take to mean provide yourself real financial services, not just like, oh, you've, you know, like you, no one's going to issue currency. It's like, no, you're going to actually give yourself financial services. You're going to run a lightning wallet and you're going to be routing and you're going to be a payment provider and you're going to, you know, make your own vaults for like secure deposits and withdrawals and all this sort of stuff. So that's kind of like one of these phrases I really like for Bitcoin and vaults are something that you can build using CTV, which let you structure sort of like uh, allowances or like annuities where you say, I've got my Bitcoin in cold storage and I want to from cold storage, which I like can't easily get to withdraw like uh, one Bitcoin a month, let's say. And then at any point, if you're like my cell phone got stolen, which is where I was putting my Bitcoin onto every month and topping up, what do I do? You can actually stop that withdrawal program, which is kind of cool. So rather than saying, I want to access my cold storage once a year, I'm going to put 12 Bitcoin on my phone. You say, I'm going to access my, uh, or I'm going to access my cold storage 12 times a year. What you say is I'm going to access my Bitcoin one time a year. I'm going to set up a program which moves it onto my phone in one month increments. And if I notice that my phone gets stolen, then I will stop that program and I will send the funds back into my cold storage. So using CTV, you initiate the transaction and that has a bunch of other transactions below it that then say, hey, send it at this block, send it at this block, send it at this block. Exactly, yeah. And, um, and then so this, and then the vaults, if somebody does get your phone and then they do send a transaction from it, a vault dictates that there's a, a period with which that trend, a block a time a period of blocks with which you have to initiate another transaction yeah you're using relative time locks yes. uh, so that you say anytime an action is taken you have a timeout and there's a default action so before the actual action happens which is like them getting your funds you have to make it wait maybe like 10 blocks and you can sneak in a transaction that sends it back to your cold storage before that mm -hmm. yeah so mm -hmm. it kind of gives you this the, one way of thinking of it is uh an undoable transaction which is kind of like, why would you want that? But imagine like undo send in Gmail. Mm -hmm. um, when you send an email and you're like, oh, I've got a typo or I accidentally you know, called my boss a mean name and I should er er erase that. 
um, as we've all maybe done. Um, and then what you could do is you could say, oh, wait, take it back. So like, let's say that you send funds to an address that you're like, I'm not sure if this is the right person. And then they say, hey, that was not the right address. This is not one that we can spend from. You can give yourself a limited amount of time to click, okay, broadcast a transaction that sends it back. Now, you can't guarantee that that transaction goes through reclaiming it, but that's sort of like the intuition for what this vault mechanism is doing is it's giving you a pathway of saying, undo this ongoing transfer to my phone, which I think, you know, if you're gonna be able to securely access your cold storage, and that's not a concern for you, and it's, you don't mind going to you know five safety deposit boxes and building one of these partially signed Bitcoin transactions at each one, then maybe that's better. But if you kind of want to have like a nice user experience where you're like going <laughs> once a year, you want to live your life, <laughs> you want to live your life, then you can kind of set this up, and it's actually I think uh, you know it respects like what are people actually going to do? They're actually just going to have their allowance in, in its entirety on their phone, but they'd be much better off setting it up as like a structure with their, you know, burn rate. Um, and this applies for like, you know, everyday users. It also applies for exchanges moving between cold and hot wallet. Um, you can also imagine doing this for uh, inheritance that you set up for your trust fund kids. Like, Hey, I don't want this money to corrupt you. You are inheriting all my Bitcoin, but I'm only going to let you spend a tenth of a Bitcoin a month. And this is going to make sure that, you know, you've got your rent taken care of, uh, but it's not going to, uh, you know, let you drive around Ferraris on the moon unless Bitcoin goes up a lot. <laughs> yeah, you're not blowing these sats on cocaine and booze, children. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Hopefully. We hope not. Yeah. We hope it, uh, um, so, so I think that's where it's like kind of cool. Um, it's very cool. And that's not something that you can really do today in, in Bitcoin. No. Um, and it's it's like thinking of it. So I actually, story time here, freaks. Uh, I believe it was like 2014, 2015. I accidentally uh, was, was being a careless Bitcoin user. And I accidentally pasted an address that I'd used before. Uh, I was trying to send a cold storage. I actually wound up sending uh, to an address that belonged to a merchant that I'd used uh, before that. And luckily, uh, the merchant was so kind to send it back. I'd email and be like, hey, I just sent you Bitcoin accidentally. Like, that sounds like a scam. Like you like you send them like, hey, I accidentally sent you this Bitcoin and it's still in the mempool. Yeah. And then you replaced by fiat. And then like they sent you different coins back or something like that. Yeah. Well, this this got <laughs> confirmed. So I was asking for like a confirmed transaction they had possession of at this point. And luckily they sent it back. But a vault would have been much more preferable than uh, having to rely on the person, the merchant responding to my email and being kind enough to actually send me back the Satoshis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so like, what, what do you think a timeline for this would be if you had to put one on it? Well, I'm having a workshop February 1st in San Francisco. So definitely, uh, you can find information on that workshop on my Twitter or on uh, utxos.org. Um, so I'm hoping people will come to that and, uh, do a lot of review. It's feeling like, uh, general, you know, consensus, uh, among developers that, that, this is an okay design. Um, there might be some tweaks that need to happen, but for people to be fully happy, but people are evaluating use cases that they're interested in and making sure that this, you know, does the job and that we're not introducing some other, you know, unintended behaviors. So I think we're getting to the point where, you know, maybe this year we can, uh, see it merge and available if miners signal for it activating. If we use version bits as the activation mechanism, I can't, you know, I don't have merge rights on Bitcoin Core, so 
or, or any implementation for that matter. Um, so I can't be like, hey, it's out there. But I think that that's where it's sort of a community thing is that people need to go and look and say, if this is a good change, like they should start vocalizing that and that's going to drive adoption and sort of integration a little bit faster. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think uh, adding to uh, the difference of Bitcoin development uh, back in the early days when you were at MIT and now that's what's been very uh comforting to see is things like the the bip tap root review sessions that were going on and i've never seen something like that uh around a bip until anthony towns took the reins there you throwing a workshop um uh for op ctv to get people interested in learning about it and uh it it just seems like things are more organized for this uh, distributed uh, software project these days uh yeah i think one of the things that uh, you know I've been thinking about is like where is like the like project management and like what does that mean for Bitcoin? And I think one thing that's unique is it's really just the community. It's like what does the community want? Where are people's priorities? What's moving the needle for them? Um, and as a result, it's not like there's like a top-down decision on what's getting done. It's just like what what do people care about? Yeah, no, and it's it's been beautiful to see uh, everybody come together and uh, just weirdly organized naturally again like as i said i've been like watching you uh on twitter from afar for like years now it's crazy to meet you in person and uh, honestly like this op ctv and we'll, we'll definitely talk about pow swap these are pretty freaking crazy uh things if they get implemented and used by people yeah i'm a little stretched for time there's like too much too much going on i need to find a way to scale myself a little bit i guess before i can scale all these projects yeah what uh how do you how do you search for help on this? Do you have uh, like a, a team of people that help review or go to? Uh, I, I wish I had a team of people to help review. Like that, that's part of why I'm out here at, at Chaincode is uh, <coughs> visiting to get them to take a look at my stuff and kind of pull their ears. Uh, and they've been really gracious hosting me. Yeah. Um, the sort of general shape of the ecosystem, I think uh, it's difficult to get... Uh, no strings funding for doing the work that you want to do. Um, so I'm, that's something that I'm actively, you know, exploring of right now, I've got some research grants from some generous, you know, individuals in the community that are helping me do this. Um, but it doesn't necessarily feel like super sustainable for myself. Um, I am also, uh, you know, sort of saying, okay, well, I'm working by myself on all these things. I've got a lot of great stuff going on if I could work with other people and, and have the you know capital available to pay other people to work on this, uh, that would move this much faster. And it's sort of a, you know, I think I've been speculating of like, what would Bitcoin look like if, you know, default wallets just said, yeah, you pay a tax to a, you know, development organization once a year and you can opt it out if you want to. It's not like a part of the protocol. It's just like, this is the expectation of the community that you should be investing 1%. And it's sort of one of these weird, you know, you know, Nash problems where if everybody else is donating 1%, you don't need to. But if you think about what is 1% of Bitcoin's market cap? Well, the problem after that is how do you distribute that 1%? Distributing is hard. So yeah. I think that, you know, ignoring, ignoring those challenges, <laughs> what I'm just saying is like, think about what it would mean for Bitcoin if 1% of the market cap went to development every year. What's no, 1%? No. That's a billion dollars, right? So we're talking about a billion dollars going into, it's probably more, I don't know, what's the market cap right now? I don't follow that stuff. 
Um, right now we're at like we got to be around 160 bill. I would say. Okay, so we're we're talking about one to two billion dollars that would just be funding protocol research and development. Like that maybe is even too aggressive. What if we did a tenth of a percent? Right. Okay. Now we're talking about like 100 to 200 million dollars just to fund protocol development, and that doesn't really even exist right now. It's just kind of crazy. We're talking about a, a, a minuscule amount of burn that people would be having, and if you hold Bitcoin. And let's imagine that, you know, we don't have this Nash equilibrium selfishness to worry about. Like, how much more valuable do you think Bitcoin would be if we had $200 million a year going into Bitcoin research and development and hiring developers? I think it's coming, though. Are you not uh, encouraged by, like, chain codes of the world? Uh, Square Crypto, uh, Digital Garage. It seems like more popping up. And I think uh those guys do have to lead because again i think the distribution problem is just a whole governance social scalability headache that's not worth it Uh, but i do think the funding needs to be there and i think hopefully more people follow and square and chain codes yeah so i think that this comes down to the uh sort of like distribution issue that you're looking at is that we have a couple organizations but it's still relatively centralized and i think that i just want to see a lot more of it yeah. Uh, a lot more development foundations, things like that. Rich, um, rich Bitcoiners, get on it. <laughs> well, that's one thing. Actually, we're 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 trying to do here. We're twenty five percent of the the sales on some of our merch is going to BTC Pay Server. Um, hopefully, I mean we're a small, humble little operation now. I would like to contribute more, but no, I do feel that need as somebody's been in Bitcoin uh, for a while to definitely donate back. And BTC Pay is what we chose recently, but um, I would love to. Uh, contribute to a fund helping uh, core developers directly. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've been thinking of and toying with, you know, like, what's my plan, you know, for for my future as a developer? How is it going to be something that I keep on doing versus having to turn away to, you know, work on something profitable? Well, if um, I will, I will definitely hit the uh, hit the road campaigning for you. <laughs> I'll I let can, you know when, when something's happening. I, I can tell you that. And I am I, 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 I'm confident people would step up for you too. I think uh, your uh, your review of the code and your your attention to Bitcoin over the years is uh, is unmatched by a lot of people, most people in the world, obviously. Um, and it would probably not be advantageous to lose your attention on the project. I I would imagine. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, so that's like yeah, the funding problem. I think it is getting better. Um, what do you think about the, like the pace of Bitcoin, like, so we've talked about, it's definitely gotten better. It's getting more efficient, but like, do you think, uh, the project's moving too slow, too fast, uh, just right? It feels like the project can be like a little bit fragmented. Um, and it feels like there can be trouble sort of like prioritizing on, um, like big projects. So Taproot and like CTV, these are big like features development, but this is maybe more like the nitty gritty of uh, improving modules in the code that, that aren't you know, feature oriented. Um, an example is I was doing some work on the mempool um, before I came out for this trip that I was trying to get reviewed on this trip and somebody else opened a new pull request uh, for something else in the mempool. And it was just kind of a refactoring, but it was going to make me have to spend several hours like if it got merged right before I came out. And I was trying to get all all this stuff done before I so I was like, hey, can you like just not merge this before I come out? Because like I don't want to spend half a day like working on rebasing this because I'm trying to get these things together. 
And they're like, okay, I'll try not to. But then it got merged. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, like, I'm working on this thing, which is, like, actually, like, a major performance improvement for the mempool, which uh, has implications not just in mining, but also during, like, reorgs, during block validation. And now I'm wasting another half day to change the name of some variables. Like, it, there's sort of, like, can be uh, fragmentation because there's not, like, a project ma project manager who is looking down and, and saying, what is every person working on? What are their priorities? What are the overall sort of like movement of the project? What things do we need to emphasize? Where should we be directing review? It's very much decentralized, scratch your own itch. And I think that that's like a virtue. You know, people are always upset. Congress is so slow to pass bills, but that's like by design. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily bad that Bitcoin is inefficient in this way, but it does impose a very heavy burden on developers who just get frustrated. Everyone yeah. I talk to quits for several months at a time and then comes back. They go, yeah, I just got so frustrated. I couldn't work on it anymore. And that's difficult because how do you support developers when their emotional state is such that like most of the developers I know take several month breaks because they're so frustrated that they can't get progress on their things. Not only are you losing those couple months of time, you're losing those developers and like people are like not happy. So I think that that's like something that I that I really care to try and fix, but it's hard to figure out how you can do that with respecting Bitcoin's value system. Yeah, no, I, I can I can't imagine how frustrating that must be to like work on something for so long and like somebody else working on it, not even unbeknownst to you, on another side of the planet, merges it and fucks up all the work you just did. Yeah. I'm not if if you're listening, I'm not angry at you for merging that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm glad that like. It's also this happy thing where like, yes, things got merged, yeah. you know, like things getting merged is like good, but it, it just like helps if, you know, it doesn't feel like it invalidates what you're trying to do. Yeah. But are these just necessary, uh, growing pains? Uh, maybe, you know, it'll get better. Um, so yeah. Well, well, I guess it also limits how quickly it can grow. That's the thing is that I know some really brilliant developers who came in to try to work on Bitcoin. And they were really excited and their contributions day one were phenomenal and they left because they were like, this is just too frustrating. Yeah. So if it's growing pains, you know, maybe, but it's also the type of thing that I think we could be growing more efficiently. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, to limit developer frustration should be a goal, right? Common sense overall. Yeah. Uh, People are doing great work on this though. Like, um, I know. Uh, Jonathan Newbury is doing a lot of really good work. Um, he just sent out uh, a survey to some contributors kind of asking like, what, hey, what's going on? You were a good contributor. Like, are you happy with how it's felt? Like what could change? And I think that that's important work to kind of figure out what we can do to improve ourselves. So it's not like people don't care about this. It's just like the state of affairs right now is, is not, you know, not lots and lots of happy developers. Yeah. Well, if you're a Bitcoin developer listening out there, thank you for what you do. Thank you for going through all that frustration and that hard work. You, you're working on something that I believe uh, is extremely worthwhile, potentially, not potentially, I think it is one of the most important technologies of our day. So thank you uh, for fighting through that frustration. And if you haven't been able to fight through that frustration, you're sitting on the sidelines now, enjoy your rest. Get that mental rest. <laughs> um, but another big contention, not contention, another big topic that causes contention uh, which I was actually happy to see brought up this week too. It's been a big week for development. Um, was activation routes, and this is probably the best 
softball to start the activation conversation with is Matt Corrallo's uh, big consensus cleanup. And so we were talking, we touched on this earlier with how do you get things activated? How do you do this right? And I think his proposal for this particular uh, BIP makes sense. It's BIP 9, 95% uh, threshold within a year. If, if that fails, you go back to six months of review, why it failed, and then you do a BIP 8. Uh, yeah, so I actually... Um, 80%. I've got some opinions here. Let's, let's hear them. Uh, so if you go in that post or search on YouTube, um, like Stanford Blockchain Conference 19 or 18 or something, I have a talk called uh, Spork. Uh, and it stands for uh, you know, sort of probably a fork. Uh, it's a probabilistic forking mechanism for Bitcoin where you can uh, change the rules only if a block passes an additional proof of work filter. So if you make a valid block that passes proof of work, you'd have to grind for another like six months of those blocks in order to find one that activates the new rule. This is a weird rule. But what's interesting is it has some properties that you can take a look at that are uh kind of cool in terms of like who has influence when and where and what that means for mining now that mechanism is not like ready to roll out and i'm not advocating for it but why i think that talk is actually worth watching uh and maybe just looking at the slides for everyone is the analysis that i do of that mechanism is compelling in its favor and it's really surprising this is why i recommend that you watch the talk is if you just look at the slides you're not going to get the nuance of like how weird it is but if you imagine if I'm a miner and I'm going to see a small decrease in revenue after a change, for some reason, I'm going to see a small decrease in revenue. This is actually the case where I would be opposed to this change, right? Um, if the fork activates sooner, I'm actually less opposed than if it activates later. So if I can delay a fork for up to three years, if you think about it, I'm going to delay it for as long as I can. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the intuition. If it activates sooner, it's actually a Band-Aid ripped and it's not as bad. And so there can kind of be these counterintuitive uh, you know, facets of like minor behavior where, yeah, decreasing minor profitability is bad, but also it's bad if we can't get protocol changes through and what we're doing is we're essentially, with the current structure that's kind of being proposed, we are allowing miners to be sort of like personally selfish at cost to the entire ecosystem. And you can model basically, and I do this in Spork, and those sort of protocol models can be adapted to other activation mechanisms. It actually ends up kind of being better for everyone if things just get activated and go through that um, you know, other miners may become even more profitable. And if you think about what's good for the Bitcoin ecosystem health, having more miners become more profitable is actually good, mm -hmm. um, even if maybe one miner gets slightly disadvantaged. Now there's sort of an issue around like, how do we pick winners and losers? We don't wanna do that. But that's where in this model that I came up with, which is there, there are opportunities to reject forks if they're seen as like, obtrusive among the miners and miners generally would reject something that seems to be unfairly picking winners and losers. If it's just like kind of a virtue of like, yeah, this is a protocol change that we need to do to fix a bug, but for some miners, it disadvantages them. And we know of things that are like this, like the time warp bug, miners can exploit time warp bugs to make more profit, but no miners doing it because it's bad for the ecosystem. If somebody warded be doing it, would we really delay activation of that soft work so that they can continue making money off of a bug? 
No, we would make the change and we'd rip the bandaid and get it done. And so I think that that's where modeling some of these things and actually thinking about what revenue are we protecting and which revenues do miners actually care about is kind of a worthwhile exercise. Yeah. And how much, how much uh, of it depends on the nuance of the particular merge, right? Like, so with the big consensus cleanup, uh, Matt seems to think that uh, it's pretty, uh, it's just taking away stuff. It's not really contentious, right? So the miners have no reason to delay it. Taking away stuff is more contentious. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember the exact rules, but there were a couple of rules that I'm not, not super happy with. And yeah, there's one There's one thing where there's an address structure that may become unspendable or something like that. Or uh, Yeah, the, with like code separators or things yeah. like that. Um, it's one of these things where like we don't really know, but those things could be inside of P2SHs that haven't been revealed. And... Maybe somebody has some buggy wallet that they wrote. Maybe even Satoshi's, you know, coins are in, I don't think they are, but it's, it's one of these things where I, I'm just kind of uncomfortable um, with setting that precedent that mm-hmm. we're like, hey, people don't really seem to be using SegWit V0 anymore. Let's just disable it. It's like, well, what if your funds are still there? Yeah. Uh, and that's a very more aggressive example because this code separator thing people aren't really ever using. But I think that it's just like, I don't like the precedent that much. Mm-hmm. And I also... I, I think that there's this trade-off that Matt's making, which is we know that we want to do all these things kind of, so why don't we just do them all at once? And then there's the flip side of like, let people pick and choose which things that they want independently. Don't make things that don't need to be correlated, correlated, mm-hmm. right? So like changing, fixing the time warp attack has nothing to do with fixing the code separator stuff. Those are two independent things. So why are we telling the community that they have to come at the same time? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to see, I think, most of the consensus cleanup happen. And I think that it really is a cleanup. Like it's not, like you said, it's taking stuff away, but taking stuff away, you know, like that can, you know, like the uh, endowment effect. Mm-mm. So if I were to... Uh, ask you if you wanted to buy my uh like uh pen how much would you buy it for as low as possible yeah, yeah like, like let's say it's a big pen and i'm okay. like hey like will you want to buy my pen 50 cents 50 cents okay so now somebody walks through the room and gives you a pen a big pen and i say hey can i buy that pen from you how much does it cost <laughs> at least 50 cents well, no, I mean, like, what people... Oh, well, no, I have a pen. You have a pen. I already have a pen. And it's your pen, and I'm yeah. like, I want that pen. Give me a quarter. A quarter, okay. Well, you're just a nice guy. But what the literature shows is that generally, like, once people have something, they really, like, don't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. Even if when they are asked if they want to purchase it, oh. they, don't think it's, they don't think it's worth anything. Yeah. So it's, they've done, you know, psychologists and economists have done this experiment that, like, yeah, things are kind of sticky, like people just like the one that they have Mm -hmm. even if like conceivably they could buy another one or uh they wouldn't personally pay that much for it but now that they have it it's it's an emotional attachment yeah Yeah. and and it's one of these like small like you know almost irrationalities that 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 people look at and i think that's where uh these sort of things come from of like oh well you're taking away this thing that i used to be able to maybe do something with at one point if i came up with something clever Mm -hmm. enough yeah, it was like ASIC boost, right? Or covert ASIC boost. That was yeah. Our, oh, we're gonna take away ASIC boost, but I have it. Yeah, and we haven't yet maybe deployed it that widely, but we were going to to make more money, and you can't really take it away if we have it. Yeah, 
Interesting. No, these are fascinating conversations. I'm glad we're being critical of this stuff. Yeah. Like, so we'll see. I mean, I hope it goes through. But. Yeah. No, but I was, again, like just back to the point of why I brought that, uh, like the activation method, right? Like it's, uh, again, is it nuanced depending on the merge? So like it would be, uh, would the bit for op CTV getting merged, uh, would you, uh, so you just, you just explained the, uh, activation method. You'd like the spork in the future, but yeah. So my general feeling and it's not my activation, I can't really do anything about, mm-hmm. I can propose like if I had my, you know, like if I were the, you know, semi dictator for Bitcoin, I would say, yeah, CTV is going to be a spork. Cause I think this has better properties for Bitcoin. But that's not what everybody else has agreed to and kind of likes right now. Right now, the standard is version bits, and that's sort of the expectation. So I would, I would propose something that fits within most people's expectations. Matt's suggestions on how we might change this, I think, might apply to like maybe the next batch of softworks, because I don't know if we're going to get community consensus that this sort of set of parameters around a version bits activation are what we actually want because it's kind of controversial like oh we're triggering in you know like a flag day at yeah. some period after like is that actually what we want that's going to require a lot more conversation to get to that point it's almost one of these things that we can walk down that road if we ever have a soft fork that fails but maybe it's good if we prepare ahead of time too no i agree and that's why i liked the the six month discussion period where after which you can be like, all right, maybe it's not a good idea. Um, I think what's nice in particular about what Matt said is that people don't know like what the process is. They're like, Hey, our soft fork failed. Let's start it again right now. It's like, okay, no, if, if it just failed, give it six months and then try again. And I think what's nice is that it's just an answer. The answer could be, yeah, start it immediately again, but start it with a, uh, like, twice as long timeout period. Mm-hmm. That's also maybe a reasonable policy because if you're going to have this discussion period, you can say, unless miners actually just like messed up and are ready to go, like allow for a flexible amount of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have any of these things, but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, there is no, uh, no. direct way to do it. Yep. Uh, um, which I'm fascinated to see, um, if BipTat, if, and when it gets a number, uh, how people, um, present that should be activated and, uh, yeah i mean th- you could also imagine a, another form of version bits uh which has uh three states um uh, one would be continue discussion the other would be activate and the last one would be fail interesting right now you only have one you know one bit and it's either reject or accept and that doesn't really capture the full spirit of like, if I'm not sig, like I can signal that I'm not opposed, which is a very different thing than I'm ready. Yeah. So for any of you freaks that are listening that are completely lost about what we're talking about right now, when the, the version bits that we're talking about, miners can signal it's a binary right now it's binary. You accept or you deny and to signal that they're ready for an upgrade or a particular bit, they will flip the version bit, uh, one way or the other to signal to the rest of the market that they're ready or not. Um, just a little, uh, version bit lesson there that you probably should have given, but I, I tried to hop yeah. in there. Uh, sorry about that. I, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm, you did, you did great. That's I'm not putting the pressure it. on you. So one of the, one of the key parts though, is that you set a start time and an end time for collecting enough signals that, that <laughs> people are ready for it. And 
I guess what I'm kind of saying is like, why have an end time if people have signaled this middle unstable state, which is let's keep on waiting to see if we get above this threshold. That would be kind of like a flexible end time, which might have some better properties for saying, um, uh, we're not sure yet. We want to keep discussion going. It might also be worse. As I said, like, you know, if you're a miner and it's going to be less revenue, you just want to keep discussion going for a long time. Filibuster, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Well, while we're on miners, God, we could talk about fucking everything right now. Um, but let's talk about POW swap. This is fascinating. Yeah. On-chain uh, hash rate derivatives. I'll let you explain. I'm not even going to try. So I came up with a primitive, which I call a block delta contract. And a block delta contract, essentially, you are observing the number of blocks that got produced in a given period. And if it is uh, above your expectation... Um, Alice gets some money. If it's below your expectation, Bob gets some money. That's the basic building block. There's a lot of like more nuanced versions that you can get into. But using that, you can imagine saying, over the next six months, if I see 100 blocks less than I was expecting, that means that we lost about like a day of hash rate mm-hmm. over that period. So I will have a contract which pays out based on that. The thing that's tricky is Poisson processes are pretty volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to think about these parameters kind of closely of like how much variance does there exist naturally. But that sort of variance, if you're trading over, you know, the sort of gambler's dilemma, can you trade long enough to not go out of business? If you trade long enough, they'll average out um, to the actual thing that happened. So these can be used by various parties to either, you know, leverage or hedge or do other sort of fundamental market operations. And so how are these constructed on, on chain? Is it a certain opcode, a certain... It's not a certain opcode. It is a transaction, uh, a set of transactions that uh, observes both the uh, block height and the uh, time. Mm-hmm. And so by observing both block height and time, you're able to check the discrepancy essentially so and decide one way or the other. We can go into like the scripts, but I think without like a picture and whiteboard, it's a little bit hard to to write out, but it works. And there's a few different ways of doing it. So it's using the, obviously, the chain as an oracle with the block height and then Unix as an oracle for the time, Unix time. Um, kind of. So you have uh, the uh, check lock time verify opcode, which checks the timestamp, which is kind of a, yeah, a Unix timestamp. Mm-hmm. But it's not like a local Unix timestamp. It's the it's global the one, one of implemented the, by the network. Yes. And so maybe this introduces an incentive to like try and shift that clock, but the network would have problems if that drifts too far from like what the actual time is. Like it's generally intended that, that should be roughly what people know the time to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and you'd have like problems like in difficulty adjustments and other things that people mess with that too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're able to observe both that and the number of blocks that passed from when you started the contract. Yeah, fascinating. And then we we were um, and this could this could be could this be implemented uh, today? Yeah, there's no there's no changes. It can be done today. I actually uh, wrote code that does it. Yeah, you have a beta open. Uh, no, yeah, like so. A, or, it's, this is a difficult project to get off the ground. Mm-hmm. If someone is really interested in it and is like, this is awesome, it probably needs like an upfront 100K of legal expenses to, to go, uh, which 
I don't have. So <laughs> if somebody wants to like help get this off the ground, uh, it's definitely something that I think is, is interesting, but I think, uh, absent having that, uh, you know, that seed sort of push on something that it's just like has to be released into the open, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, like these contracts and, uh, this big legal expense to kind of like validate that this is an okay thing to release. It's, it's a little bit hard for me to get traction on. Hey, rich Bitcoiners, <laughs> listen up. Is this the first podcast you've ever been on? Uh, no, I've been on a, a yeah. couple. Yeah. This is a great one. And you know, this is a special thing between us, but yeah, yeah. there are other podcasts that I've. No, cause I was doing, I was trying <laughs> to do as much research as possible. I didn't come as many podcasts, came with more, um, more blog posts and, and, tweets and pull request. Yeah, I, I've done a, I've done a couple, um, yeah. but I guess I haven't done as many that are like, uh, like industry podcasts. Like I've yeah. been on one or two that are maybe more broad. Yeah. Yeah. No, do the industry rounds, man. People, <laughs> more people should be hearing your thoughts. It's, Thank uh, you. it's, uh, I'm very, no, I'm flattered to have you in and that's well back to the, uh, the derivatives, the difficulty for derivatives, we were having this discussion before we hit record, and it's one thing I've been thinking about a lot is why would you ever short difficulty uh, outside of a hedge against uh, a big purchase of miners that haven't been released to the market yet? And you made a very good point. You don't even have to short difficulty, really. You can just short the pace of difficulty growth or hash rate growth. Yeah, so I think that that's the thing is that who's taking these trades? Like, who wants these contracts? Um, that's sort of an open question. I do fundamentally believe it's like a two-sided market because miners with different risks will want to hedge both ways and miners who are very confident may want to leverage their positions. So you do kind of have this, you know, both sides, but you have to keep in mind that like the default thing that happens in the network economically is that hash rate increases. So no one's actually trading hash rate goes down. They're just trading hash rate doesn't go up as much as you expected it to, or it goes down a little bit. It, it, you could also write contracts for systematic collapse, but that's like a little bit harder to do because if you have a systematic collapse in hash rate, you're not even going to have blocks to put your transactions in. So, yeah, yeah. How do you claim that? Yeah, uh, it's a little hard to claim. So it doesn't work as well when there's sort of like unlimited downside, and that makes sense because or unlimited down, downward movement in uh, hash rate because you just won't have blocks. So that's sort of outside the model of of when you would use these. Um, but as a, as a non-mining user, there are also reasons that you might want to take these positions. One thing you might say is, I want to get paid out if hash rate collapses, and I'm going to need a lot of Bitcoin if that happens. So you make a bet that says hash rate goes down to 10% of what it is. Would that ever happen? I don't know. But how much Bitcoin would you want to have if that went down? Because Bitcoin's not going to be worth as much. So if you want to have savings in Bitcoin, what this does is it turns Bitcoin for you into kind of a stable coin. <laughs> where you know, a stable coin, I don't know if there's a banned word for here, but no, uh, no, stable coins are fine. So it's a Bitcoin. We think they're inherently unstable, but yeah. you can use them. So, so what's, what's the key observation is Bitcoin isn't the thing that's stable, but it's the amount of dollars that you could redeem the Bitcoin that you have after you have one of these hash rate downside, uh, you know, uh, shorts open. That's kind of like very wide. It's like, okay, like I'm going to lose, uh, up to, uh, let's say you do 50% hash rate down and you think that there's a correlation, linear correlation between hash rate and price. You're like, okay, if it goes down 50%, give me twice as much Bitcoin as I have. Mm-hmm. And if you enter that kind of contract, you're going to be losing a little bit of overhead for premiums to buy them. But on the other hand, if it does, if you, if it does slip that, that much, 
you will now have a lot more Bitcoin. Yeah, you're made whole. So, so it kind of keeps you within a band, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. That's like a Bitcoin savings contract. Yeah, it's cool, but it has me thinking. Like, what what happens in a world where like Bitcoin is the unit of account, like the and oh. people people aren't denominating their savings in the so in this the is still useful. Like, it's yeah. it would just be like if you if you're long, you would, you would unwind that if, contract. If you're long you're... volatility, you would want these contracts because you would say, "I'm long volatility." I think that Bitcoin's going to just have one of these big swings, and then it's going to pop back up. Mm-hmm. And it's a unit of account, but it still has purchasing power, yeah. right? So, you know, even the dollar, even though it's the unit of account for the world, uh-huh. you know, like things change prices. Yeah. Um, so that's not going to, it's not going to fundamentally change, but you, you would still be, if you're like, hey, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And then this to you looks like a trade of like, okay, if the hash rate goes down, I just get all this Bitcoin. Yeah. And you're not really worried about if it's preserving your stability because you think Bitcoin's already stable. It's just like. I am willing to pay a little bit on this bet that Bitcoin goes down this much or Bitcoin goes up, you know, more than you expected. Those kind of things. Yeah. It's fascinating. You can do this all on chain too. All on chain. Is it DeFi? It is. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I've told some people who are like very into DeFi. I'm like, so I'm working on something DeFi and they get really excited. And I tell them like what it is. And they're like, that's not DeFi. I'm like, what is DeFi? You know, what is this <laughs> decentralized finance? They're like, well, we have like, uh, you know, this protocol, I'm like, okay, well, where's the Oracle? They're like, uh, yeah, well, you know, we have this one Oracle for price, but it's like this decentralized, you know, it's like, okay, well in this, the only thing is Bitcoin. It's crazy. It's Bitcoin. You know, there's no external third, you know, get rid of all that. This is just Bitcoin observing its own financial health and then trading contracts based on that health, which is kind of mind blowing. It's crazy. I feel like it should be talked about more. Uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to drive it forward, but it's kind of a difficult thing to make, to well, make certain kinds of progress on. You've made my uh, Friday morning easy. I know what I'm going to write about already because <laughs> um, this definitely does need more attention. And that's the thing. Like, that's the thing that blows my mind. There's a lot of noise in Bitcoin and the overarching cryptocurrency space, and DeFi being one of the loudest uh, noises in the space right now. And um, stuff like this is is very uh, it's tangible and it actually seems like something that I would use in the future instead of yeah one of the things i think that's uh sort of the case for DeFi is you are building crap on top of crap that's kind of like the general structure uh where it's like we have this DeFi thing and we're able to trade all these tokens in this like liquid market and ethereum or whatever and it's like that's cool right so maybe that's okay but what are the tokens that you're trading? They're, th- they're, they're things no one cares about necessarily. And so be, just by virtue of what you built it on top of, like as soon as you have an asset, that, an asset that somebody actually cares about, then it will be interesting. But until then, it's kind of crap on top of crap. With this, it's Bitcoin, which people actually care about. And so it's kind of <laughs> cool because like, okay, like now we have something to trade Bitcoin in these you know, complicated derivatives contracts. Um, and I think that maybe is sort of like a meaningful use case. I also think the set of people who are hardcore Bitcoiners and the set of people who are into DeFi right now are like very separate sets. Like maybe like uh, Udi reads a lot about DeFi, but not too many other people. But this is like a concrete benefit for a lot of long-term Bitcoin holders that they can buy these contracts that will give them some downside protection. That's like a pretty compelling use case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, again, I'm just a simple podcaster, hodler who just wants sound money and uh, more importantly, money that uh, I control and, um, all the DeFi stuff. Like it seems cool, but it's like, eh, who is really going to use that? Like, 
Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I am worried like, you know, like, okay, maybe you can build these contracts and then the market doesn't show up because it's easier to trade them on CME. That's possible. And that's, that's a real possibility uh, for but, a lot of people. You don't need this decentralized aspect. Um, so it's possible that people don't want this, but I think it's, I think it's important if Bitcoin is going to achieve its dreams and truly soar that, Hey, we actually have left the existing system behind. So that's a little bit of why I like PowSwap. Yeah. Cause again, yeah, actually closing the loop, right? Like why, why would you, why would you want to expose yourself to the CME and that when you can just do it on chain? Well, there are, there are a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm always happy to be the devil's advocate against my work. Okay. Um, yeah, it's sort of a, you know, scouts honor or whatever. Um, part of it is that these centralized exchanges work really well, mm-hmm. right? You put in an order, it gets filled. You have market makers, you have fairness, you have regulations, you know that people are you know, not allowed to be market making and also mining, you know, like they have like checks and balances, these kind of things to make sure that there's not like weird market manipulations in a, in a true DeFi context that, that regulatory side doesn't, doesn't exist. And so a lot of people think that there's maybe like more safety in that. Um, and so that, that's, I think, why people might prefer to work with a centralized exchange rather than a decentralized but, one. But wouldn't the safety, uh, wouldn't that be more regulating like the actual, like the heart, like the stuff in meat space, right? Like you can't really regulate. Well, is, I, is if it's two consenting adults and entering in a contract on chain. Like, so... That's a nice, you know, like story, right? But it, yeah. it turns out that it doesn't really matter where the contract is. It just matters, you know, like that the contract was written and the regulators like have, you know, their finger in that pie. So yeah. So, so, so for regulation, like the regulations will apply regardless. It'll just be that like they're not like necessarily enforceable. Um, and if they're not enforceable and people are cheating, you'll be you'll feel safer trading on the centralized exchange because they'll do things like there's no actual Bitcoin in these contracts. They're all cash settled. Uh, and so like okay you just get a dollar payout uh when this contract strikes in your favor um and people aren't worried about whatever random stuff happening you know they're just like okay i get my dollars and then if it comes out that like one miner shut their miners off in order to fraudulently manipulate the market then the cftc maybe rolls in and said no this is like the underlying commodities market was fraudulent we're going to roll back the trades for the last day yeah and maybe that's what happens i don't know the exact particulars of how that would shake out between the cftc and sec if you have a fraudulent underlying market um but you would have those protections because they're cash settled here you wouldn't have that protection if a miner is like you know what i'm going to shut off my miners and i'm going to collect all these you know, like all this money, mm-hmm. um, that's possible. This is actually a good thing though. And that's what's most interesting. And do you want to know why it's a good thing? Of course I do. What does the derivative do fundamentally? It's hedge? No. Like, like think about for a oh, commodity. It, it reacts. What does it do to the commodity? It reacts to, I mean, it, uh, what does the, does the derivative? Yeah, like why do we tolerate these stupid, you know, like derivatives trading, like crazy marketplaces, like what are they, what are they trying to accomplish for a society? Like, why do we think this is like a good thing worth spending any time reduce on? Reduce risk, increase uh, confidence. In yeah. Certainty. Reduce risk, increase confidence, stabilize supply. Okay. Right. So that's, this is a key thing. If you have all these derivatives and financialization of the base layer, you stabilize block production. So boom, right? Right now, we think blocks come every 10 minutes, right? But if the hash rate goes up or down, that changes. With 
financialization, people may actually keep some latent hash power in order to stabilize the chain if hash rate drops off. So that's actually the result is that if you believe in derivatives as like an instrument that has social value, then Bitcoin would be more reliable as blocks would show up, you know, at 10 minutes. You can't guarantee yeah. that because, hey, that's not how Poisson processes work. Yeah. But the moves would be less dramatic. Yeah. You would not see moves in the underlying as much because people would have incentive to smooth out that movement, uh, which could be a good thing for society. Like, hey, a lot of new hash rates going on. So we're going to take off our older hash rate to keep that number stable so that we know how our contracts execute. Because that equilibrium derivative should you know, keep the prices more stable. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing like the halving always drives home is like, yeah, like two years ago, the halving was supposed to be on like Memorial Day of this year. But now and it's... no one knows what hap- what's going to happen to difficulty. Right. But if you financialize the production of blocks around the halving, you will say, yes, people have bet a lot of money that bo- blocks will continue to be produced. Yeah. And that that should be the thing that happens. And like, you know, maybe miners are bought into that. And that kind of is a coordinating function for keeping the, the chain stable. Yeah. So there was a difficulty adjustment two nights ago. I was checking the blocks are coming in about like nine minutes and 10 seconds okay. right now. They're coming at 922. But yeah, like we say, I mean, I say it all the time. Every 10 minutes there's a block. But really, uh, up to this point, uh, it's been pacing uh, ahead of that. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's actually one of the things that's that people don't realize is that Bitcoin targets 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which means that blocks should always come in if hash rate's growing faster than 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Because hash rate grows, it comes in a little bit less every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so much to, to take into consideration when approaching Bitcoin. And, and again, going back to the fact that you're jumping around the code base and working on all these different areas blows my mind. Like I can barely try to articulate uh, what Bitcoin is and the different parts of it, let alone make the code that makes it work. Well, imagine how much my head is spinning. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. How do you, how do you take a break? How do you, uh, how do you clear your mind? And stay sane. So I have a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a pretty important part of my life. You know, like make sure that I get outside, get some fresh air every day. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I cook, most of my meals, it's sort of like building these like healthy habits that I think are like almost self-regulating where, um, if you set yourself up in an environment where you kind of have these obligations to do things that are, that are good, you kind of balance out your life. And then when you're focusing on your work, uh, one thing that's important to me is that I uh, have a laptop for traveling, but I work at a desktop. It's building that stability in so that when you have so much hectic going on elsewhere, you can lean on that as, as your routine. Oh, I love that advice. Routine is important. Yeah. What's your dog's name? Asher. Asher. Yeah. How old is he? Uh, two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah, so I've had him for uh, most of that time. What kind of dog is he? Australian cattle dog. Uh, yeah, he's a mix. Hyper? I got him from the shelter. He's hyper. Uh, he's a very, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, kind of like those dogs are just like really smart and mm-hmm. like they have a lot of stuff going on and they're kind of like watching everything and hurting and uh, I don't know, I'm very happy. It's like, you know. I would, you know, say good things in my life, like Asher ranks above Bitcoin. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, wow, that's true love. Yeah. Um, I, know, I hope to meet Asher. Only dog owners that. will understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, for, unfortunately, no, not in this apartment. We're not allowed. Um, uh, but I think in our next place, we're going to get one. Nice. I am the dog person. I like What dogs. kind will you get? I want a lab. Um, the American chocolate lab. Um, my wife would like an English bulldog though. She mm. likes the, uh, but I think that's torture. I think that's cruel. 
Yeah, they they have some intense breathing problems. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I want, I want a dog I can take for a walk too, like a long walk. Yeah. My rule of thumb is you kind of have to be able to like wrestle the dog. And it's yeah. like, okay. Yeah. My parents have a, a, a Orwellian, an Orwellian bear dog or what? Not Orwellian. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, they have a, uh, it's like a bear dog. Uh, I forget huh. the first name of it, but he's Dublin. He's a, that, that must be a gigantic dog. It's, it's actually, he's, uh, he's, He's probably like 60 pounds. Okay. That's pounds. Not, I mean, I'm thinking a bear dog. Like yeah. A, no, a so, wolfhound is big. No. So he's like, like a, like a shepherd dog. Okay. Uh, he, he herds bears gotcha. or scares them away from, from farmers and bear, uh, bear country, if you will, mm-hmm. around the world. Um, and that was dog talk on Tales of the Crypt. Yeah. Uh, you talk about Dogecoin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doge. What is Jackson Palmer up to these days? He completely left the space, it seems. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't been following. I don't know. I think, yeah. I think he works at like Lyft or something like that. Interesting. Um, hated his own creation. The man who created Dogecoin. That's what we're asking about. Doge is still around. It's all still around. What do you think going forward? Do you think we have... Maybe uh, I should get CTV merged in Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> to prove yeah. is that the, the lightning to Bitcoin gold is actually Dogecoin, not Litecoin. Or the uh, silver to Bitcoin's gold. I, I have no idea. I'm kidding. What are your thoughts on the, uh, do you think uh, we'll see uh, an explosion of alts like we did in 2013, ICOs like we do in 2017 going forward? Do you think the market's learning, uh, consolidating? So I have a little bit of like a take that not everyone agrees with. Um, more okay. coins are great. More money, more whatever, like issue whatever you want. Like I said earlier, be your own bank, right? Banks can issue, you know, bank-issued currencies. In America, they're maybe illegal, but in other countries, banks have their own, you know, reserve notes or whatever. So if you actually want to have your own, like, financially independent group, like, yeah, it's fine if you issue your own currency. I think that that looks different than a lot of what the ICOs are doing. Uh, There's a lot of sort of, like, fraudulent promise on, like, what it means to be an ICO, like, oh, there's this decentralized ecosystem that emerges that you're going to be able to use these digital goods. And it's like, okay, well, hold on a second. But just the idea of like, hey, we are this nas- you know, nationality and we're trying to establish our own country and we are going to outsource our currency operation to like, you know, Bitcoin or something like that. And we're going to use this as our monetary platform. That's actually kind of a powerful idea. And I think that um, I'm like perfectly okay if that's what's going on um, and think that like we should hope to see more of that because that means that more people are getting fundamental freedom through Bitcoin. But when it's like, Hey, we're a centralized group of developers issuing something to like make a big profit. That's like a different. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, at least the people that are in it for money too, they usually trickle towards Bitcoin. Again, the yeah. network effects take over. Do you like, do you think this is given the amount of energy and infrastructure needed to make these networks run? Like, do you think this is winner take most to all at the end of the day? No. So I think if you talk to like some hardcore Bitcoiners, um, what you'll find is that they spend a lot of money on their credit cards because if you spend on your credit card, you get to hold your Bitcoin for longer. And that's sort of like a fundamental thing is that the money that you're using to spend is generally credit because it's, it's cheaper. Okay. And, and spend the bad money first, kind of, right? Um, so if you think if you're holding Bitcoin, you think it's going up. Well, this is in a world in which good money doesn't exist, right? Or credit will still well, exist. 
Yeah. Oh, I agree, I agree with yeah. that. So, so you still need loans. You still need all this stuff. So credit is still going to exist. I agree with and that. So if you have credit, spend on your credit and hold on to your assets. Um, and I think that that's also where, you know, maybe like other coins can exist and fulfill a need is like, if I issue for my organization, our own currency, it's sort of like a line of credit for our company. That's like tr traceable. Like how many of your own coin have you issued? And then are you able to like buy them back at like some, what's the price that you're buying them back at? What's the price that anybody's buying them at? Having that market allows people to like issue credit sort mm -hmm. of. So I wouldn't exactly say that here's like a specification for how you issue credit on, on a chain by issuing tokens. But I think that there's kind of like a mirror where those things look kind of the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I like what Hal said, right? With the banks, right? Like you have like a quasi 18th, 19th century Canadian banking system when they had a free banking system where I think people can get Bitcoin reserves and then uh, build what you were describing earlier yeah. um, on top of that using with proof of using combination of proof of reserve and other stuff to create credit lines for people. Yeah, with, well, that being, with that being said, like I don't have a lot of credit. I, I try to live like within my means and pay that. Um, so like in that future too uh, uh, well paying it down is fine yeah right it's just that like you get that extra month of exposure yeah so you you know i'm, I'm not advocating that uh, anybody like, no, don't pay off your credit card yes absolutely pay it off because those interest rates you're probably not going to beat with bitcoin but at least month to month like hold on to your bitcoin get the upward movement of bitcoin because you're trying to like you know like in if the bitcoin goes up let's say 20 percent this year it's going to happen most likely in the middle of one of those months and not on the day of your billing cycle or whatever. And so if you're constantly selling Bitcoin to make all these transactions, you're going to miss the day that it goes up, yeah. right? Uh, on most of your Bitcoin. But if you wait for that month of spending, like you'll get that appreciation for most of your, and you know, this is not financial advice. No, this, is just, this is not but financial This is just sort of like a, you know, like if you had this fundamental belief that Bitcoin was going to go up a lot or stay about the same, it's better for you to hold on. If you think Bitcoin is really volatile and about neutral, then you wouldn't really care. Yeah. It's like, okay, like I'm either going to gain or I'm going to lose, like whatever. But if you think that Bitcoin has an upward direction, then it makes sense to kind of play this game of like waiting to sell your Bitcoin to pay your credit card. Yeah, yeah. The speculative attack. Yeah. Um, it's leverage. Yeah. Right? That, that fundamentally is just leverage, holding on to a larger Bitcoin position than you can afford. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what's happening. It's not what we advise here. We're not giving out advice here. Okay. We're just talking. We're talking <laughs> about ideas. We're walking through some thought experiments. I definitely know people who have gotten, like, have do leverage by cash advances on their credit card, which is an awful idea. An awful idea. <laughs> Terrible idea. <laughs> not to, me, but... Do not get payday loans to, yeah. to buy Bitcoin. Um, that's... Uh, you can't stop people from shooting themselves in the foot. No. No, you have to learn. We all learned. <laughs> uh, some faster than others. Um, Jeremy, you have to, to meet up with your family. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, Thanks for having me on. It's been awesome. I really appreciate it. I really hope this isn't the only time. This is the first time. First of many, I'm sure. Um, I am too. Uh, where can we find you? Where can we help you? Uh, you can find me at Jeremy Rubin on Twitter. Uh, you can send me a message, shoot me a DM. Um, and normally I'm in uh, San Francisco, the Bitcoin devs meetups or whatever. Um, if you're a you know, Bitcoin contributor, uh, happy to you know, chat there. Come to the workshop if you're in the city. Bang, bang. Jeremy, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your time. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>